You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the podcast. Today, we are talking about the historical David, not to be confused with the not historical David, I guess. <laughs> yeah. With You'll uh, have to just listen to the podcast. To Professor Joel Baden. Yeah, Joel teaches at Yale, and uh, you know he's a big guy in Hebrew Bible, and he writes all sorts of stuff, and including a book that's relevant for today's episode. It's called The Historical David, The Real Life of an Invented Hero. There's your hint. Exactly. If that's not a provocative lead-in to this episode, yes, I don't know what it is. it really is. All right, let's get to it. You know, our modern idea of history, you know, quote unquote, as it actually was, or this sort of objective, I'm just going to tell the facts, ma'am, sort of uh, historical writing, that's not something that existed, I, I don't know, probably until a couple hundred years ago. All right, Joel, thanks for being here. It's great to have you on the podcast. My pleasure. Well, let's let's talk about David, shall we? That's the David in the Bible. And just give us a 30,000-foot overview of where the story is found, first of all, and, and just what this long story of David contains generally. Sure. So, we pick up the story of David... Uh, appearing on the scene right in the in the middle of the the book of First Samuel, uh, so and and, and it's going to last through the rest of First Samuel, all of Second Samuel, and uh, and trail off into the first couple of chapters of First Kings. So we're talking about actually a almost unthinkably large amount of text devoted to really the biography of. Uh, one character. There's really nothing else like it in the Bible. Moses has got a bunch of stuff, uh, obviously, in the in the Torah or the Pentateuch, but it's not biographical so much. This is really David's story. It, it places him as really the central character of uh, the entire Hebrew Bible. Where we are, of course, is that uh, you know, we're, we've, we've gone, being in 1 Samuel, we've left the world of the judges, of Samson and Deborah and all of them, and we've come to Israel's first thing resembling a king in Saul, David's predecessor. Uh, and Saul has had his ups and downs, uh, mostly downs. And we know already from the Saul story that God is upset at Saul and is going to raise up, as the, as the text famously says, a man after my own heart to replace Saul. And that's going to be David. And uh, so David enters the scene in the middle of Saul's reign, just as God has turned his affections away from Saul. In comes David to, uh, to step up to the plate, as it were. The story itself, it's a ramble. It's, a, it's an epic. It's, it's, it's kind of amazing in its scope. We've got David as a youth. You know, in the David and Goliath story, famously, uh, you know, you picture this little, this teenage kid, uh, you know, I think he should be scrawny, even if the paintings don't always make him that way. You got the this kid facing off against the giant. Uh, he's got battles that he wins. He has marriages, multiple marriages, more than you'd think uh, one guy would need, but I'm not one to judge. And he's got kid problems, story about who's going to succeed him. Which one of his sons is it going to be? It ends up being Solomon. That's a whole story unto itself. There's rebellions against him by his own kids. Absalom, most uh, most famously, he's in power. He's out of power. He's back in power. He's hated by the people. He's loved by the people. And in the end, uh, you know, he dies a happy death uh, of old age. You know, not before he's passed on some advice to Solomon on how to you know keep the family in power. 
Not how to be a good king, but how to keep the family in power. Right. right. Yeah. Well, that, that kind of goes to the first question we want to talk about, because we, we like to take a step back and look at what, what kind of thing are we looking at when we look at the story of David, and you call it an apology. So, what do you mean by that? And then, what evidence do you have for reading the David story that way? In some ways, I think that's what we're going to be talking about the rest of this episode, but maybe you can point us to a few factors that lead you there. I think the first thing to talk about is like, when we're reading the Bible, we actually don't often ask the question of, I think, genre. Uh, it's easy when you're reading poetry, you're like, oh, this is poetry, not prose, or this is laws and not narrative, whatever. But, you know, not all narratives are just straightforward historical recountings. And in fact, I would go so far as to say, none are. You know, our modern idea of history, you know, quote unquote, as it actually was, or this sort of objective, I'm just going to tell the facts, ma'am, sort of uh, historical writing, that's not something that existed, I, I don't know, probably until a couple hundred years ago. But in any case, certainly not back in, in ancient Israel. The purpose of writing wasn't just to record what happened exactly as it happened. Everything was written, and this is, I mean, this is true of everything from Genesis 1 onward. Every story, every narrative in the text is written in order to convey something to the reader, to convince us of something. So even just to, to step back and say, just ask the question, why am I reading this story? Why did somebody think I, I should write down this story in this way? That in itself is, I think, sort of the very first step to, to starting to, to read the Bible in what I think of as a, at least a more interesting way than the, than the well, it's, it's telling me the exact facts exactly as they happen. So once we start saying that, we can ask questions like, okay, so what is this story trying to do to me as a reader? What is, what is it trying to accomplish? What kind of um, what kind of feelings for the characters am I supposed to have? Am I supposed to like the characters or dislike the characters? Whose side am I supposed to be on? How is the text convincing me that so and so is good or so and so else is bad or you know these kinds of these kinds of cues? And the David story. As you said, I, I categorize uh, as uh, an apology. Now, apology obviously doesn't mean what it, in this case, what it means uh, to most people today, which is, I'm sorry. Uh, an apology in the literary genre sense is, uh, we, we know it today, I think, mostly, essentially, as what we would think of as spin. And an apology says, yes, I know that stuff happened. But it's not what you think. It didn't happen exactly the way it looks or might seem. And again, we have this kind of thing. We don't call them apologies, although we probably should. But we see this thing all the time today in media, in politics. You know, the example I think I, I, I use a lot is, you know, if you were to look back on, well, there's so many examples examples of this now, but you look back on, uh, I don't know, back when the government shut down, however many years ago, that 10 years ago now or whatever it was, uh, and you were like, okay, the government for sure shut down. Who's to blame for that? You know, as you read different people's takes on it uh, from the different sides, eh, it's the Democrats' fault, it's the Republicans' fault. You know, how do you eat each one of those narratives of the agreed upon events of the past is colored by, uh, okay, so who's at fault? Who benefits? Who's to who's to blame? Uh, who was the real hero of the story? Uh, those are all apologies in their way, and that's what the David story is doing too. I think. What it's doing is it's taking observable, known things about its main character, David, and then going to great lengths to tell us, but I promise it's not as bad as it looks. And this is, this is not me imposing uh, some uh, you know, later literary genre onto the biblical text. Uh, quite the contrary. One of the best examples of an apology that we have comes from 
before David's time from the, the Hittite kingdom up in Turkey from about the 14th century BCE, where we have a text, uh, you know, called the Apology of, I'm not even going to bother with the king's name, it's, it's too much to say, a text created by a king to explain how it is he ended up on the throne. Why did he need to explain that? Because he wasn't the next in line. Right? And of course, you know, kingship was supposed to be hereditary, and this guy was not the next in line. How did he end up on the throne? And he goes through this whole story. Well, the gods favored me, but my, you know, the person who was supposed to be king really didn't like me, and so he tried to kill me. I didn't try to kill him, but once he tried to kill me, I had to kill him, and then I ended up on the throne, and the gods and the people really liked that. Which not only is a great example of a text trying to explain how something unlikely happened and it wasn't the main character's fault, it's also kind of exactly the same thing that David's story is. David is a kid from nowhere, a backwater Judah, which was not a particularly bustling metropolis uh, or area back then. How did this no one end up uh, king of all of Israel and Judah combined? You know, in the ancient world, you don't luck into kingship. You have to get, you get there either because you were born into it or because you went and wanted it and got it except in the David story. In the David story, the whole story really goes, especially, you know, the rise of David, the, the story about how he got to be king. The whole story is he really didn't want it at all, but stuff just kept happening. And it, and the, just, you know, the crown, I mean, I'm not even making this up. The crown literally falls into his lap <laughs> in, in, in the Bible. And that is, uh, you know, that, I think that raises the kinds of questions like, okay, so since that seems so unlikely, from everything we know historically, what is this? What's this text really trying to do? Mm -hmm. So, can I ask the question just to maybe make this a little more concrete? What is the spin actually in the David story? It's you're saying it's not that bad, or is, is could you flesh it out a little bit more? Is there more to it than that? Sure. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, the, I was sort of alluding to it a second ago. The big spin is certainly in the in the first part of the story, his rise to power. The big spin is he didn't want this. And it's important to say that because, of course, he ends up as king after Saul and Saul's son, Jonathan, die. So, you know, generally uh, you would see a, a nobody who comes to be king uh, when the previous king and that king's heir die as, uh, I don't know, potentially suspicious, especially when, as the Bible itself admits, you know, the previous king, this is Saul, was convinced that David was in fact trying to usurp the throne, was trying to ha uh, commit a coup. Saul, Saul is convinced of this. Saul tries to kill David. David ends up uh, running away from Saul and living among and working for the Philistines, Saul's enemies, and in fact, the very people who kill Saul in battle. And then once Saul is dead, uh, the crown is brought to is brought to David. I mean, truly like brought to him in person and handed to him. The spin here is despite all of those known facts that, you know, Saul was king, Jonathan should have been next. They both died at the hand of the Philistines for whom David was working. And Saul thought that David was trying to do exactly this. The spin of the text is, yeah, but that's not actually how it happened. Yeah. And, and, when just reading through your book, it's the that apology or spin is necessary because there are things that that happened that can't be denied. And so we have these kind of anchor points of things that happened, but we have to be able to spin it because we can't just deny it. Or we can't just make it up. And so because for me growing up, my Sunday school thing was like, well, the Philistines are the enemy, but they're in our Bible David is working with the Philistines, and that's a yeah. clue that maybe something else is going on. 
Right. And this happens again and again. I mean, if, if you were to sort of step back from the David story and just sort of look at it in sort of structural outline, I think what you'd see, and I, lots of people have recognized this, what you'd see is lots of bad stuff happens. Right? Lots of people die, not just Saul and Jonathan, but, you know, husbands of people who become David's wife. I'm thinking here of Abigail. The story of how Abigail becomes David's wife involves, by the Bible's own admission, David running a protection racket, like a, you know, like a, like a minor mafia don, and killing, uh, or not, and killing, and, and, and Abigail's husband dying, according to the text, just at the hand of God, at which point Abigail's like, sure, I'll be your wife. Right? There's this over and over again. You know, e- even after he's come to power, when he's, when he's waging war against Saul's descendants and the former general of Saul's kingdom, you know, says, I can bring the Saul's kingdom over to your side. And, you know, terrific, that happens. And then that guy dies, is murdered. All this stuff just looks bad. It's just, he's surrounded, David is surrounded by death in his story. And every single death that occurs benefits him politically and personally. And the text goes to enormous lengths for every single one of them to say, but David didn't do it. Or, but David wasn't there. Or, but David didn't want this. You know, and, and so the story itself is one of stuff you'd never want to say about your king, right? or especially especially your like founding father legend king, right? Uh, which is what David certainly becomes. But when, you, when you're reading the books of Samuel, it's just episode after episode of stuff that really shouldn't happen, bad stuff. You know, Absalom, his son, tries to commit a coup against him and succeeds for a while and then is killed. Um, and even that death, right, famously, you know, David weeps profusely over the death of Absalom, although there's no other way that story ends except with David necessarily needing Absalom to die. It's, it's, it's all this stuff throughout. Well, maybe we can just nerd out a little bit, but can you say more? You talk about Joab being a central part of this apology. He's almost sort of a necessary character to pull off this apology. Can you say more about who Joab was and how does he function in this apology? Sure. In the story of, of, of David, Joab is his right-hand man, right? He's his uh, consigliere, not to be too heavy-handed with the mafia analogies here, but he's, he's, his, he's his general, he's his top general. And it is an astonishing feature of the story that when there are political opponents that need getting rid of, all too often it is Joab who does the, who does the dirty deed. And again, repeatedly it's, you know, Joab, Joab stabs like two or three people in the story, always important figures that needed getting rid of. And every time David's like, what, what a terrible thing you've done, Joab, getting rid of my most powerful enemy. And, you know, curses Joab and, uh, you know, swears that uh, all these terrible things will happen to Joab because he, he, he was such an awful person who, of course, uh, never gets, I don't know, fired for any of this stuff, of course. You know, Joab, Joab plays the part of like the, exactly sort of, I guess, exactly like in a mafia family, right? The, you know, Don Corleone isn't actually killing anyone himself. It creates a distance. So plausible deniability. In, indeed. I mean, in not just plausible deniability, because the, the Bible is, is, actually, is, is actually making the case. It's actual deniability, right? There's, there is actual denial. One of my favorite examples of this, and it's the, the story I was just talking about, is when the, uh, when the, the general from Saul's army uh, sort of uh, flips sides uh, and comes to David and meets with David and says, I'll, I'll, you know, I, I've, I've brought the, 
the north uh, over to your to your side, David. Three times in that, in like at least three times in this one chapter, it says, you know, when he left David's side, he was completely unharmed. And even that alone is simply not a objective recording of historical fact. That's clearly intended to say, whatever's about to happen to this guy, David had nothing to do with it. That to me is uh, really a stunner of a giveaway. When he left David, he was totally safe. To say that over and over again in one chapter is a little bit on the, you know, it's a little bit on the order of, you know, uh, the lady doth protest too much. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Okay, so I want to make sure we get to a couple of things here because we can't talk about David without talking about two stories, David and Goliath and then David and Bathsheba. So let's let's uh, go through those stories and you know give us an overview of first David and Goliath and how that story fits into the spin. David and Goliath is probably, I mean, David and Bathsheba is the other one, but certainly probably the most famous of the episodes in the David story. Uh, I mean, we still talk all the time about, you know, David and Goliath uh, kinds of confrontations. This is right at the beginning. And again, as I said earlier on, right, you picture David as sort of like a, a kid. He's, he's not even really old enough to be in battle, according to this story, right? His, his brothers have gone to fight and he's just come to check on them. And, you know, he just happens to be the one who's brave enough to go face down this giant one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. Setting aside any question of, you know, whether it's historically accurate, this is exactly the kind of story that establishes David as worthy of kingship. He has, you know, he walks out. He's the only one in the entire country brave enough to fight off the Philistines. That's a slap in the face to Saul, who made his name fighting the Philistines. So the whole story is, is uh, I think, you know, clearly intended to let us know, and I think this is how everyone has always taken it, this guy is... The man after God's own heart, right? This is the this is the deserving next king of Israel. The problem with the story, there's two problems with the story. Here's the I'll, I'll do the like the sillier of the problems first, is that as you read the David story, uh, you get to uh, what some might call I don't know, the boring parts, uh, which is sort of the uh, the listing of the, uh, the warriors who are in David's army uh, among David's fighters and what they're exploits were. This is a little sort of Homeric section of, you know, pithy kind of descriptions. Ah, and then there was this guy who fought three lions with his bare hands in the valley of whatever. He was a great warrior. And then there's this other guy who faced down 50 enemies by himself. And then we read about this one guy, Elkanon, who killed Goliath, and then like describes Goliath perfectly. You know, Goliath, this giant of a man, this giant Philistine from Gat, who uh, had a spear like a weaver's beam, right? Like this exact precise description. You're like, wait a second. I don't think there are two Goliaths. That seems unlikely. And so at this at least raises the possibility, to my mind, probability that this list of David's warriors exploits was uh, sort of a, a, a something of an independent freestanding kind of thing. And somebody came along and was like, well, David needs a David needs a killer story to like vault him into position of uh, 
of fame. Uh, let's just take this one. And so uh, so David gets this expanded version of, of this story about killing Goliath. So th- I mean, that at least raises some, some questions about the validity of the story. Uh, the, the bigger and better problem is, is this. We almost all of us uh, play this remarkable sort of, um, remarkable logical trick in our heads when we read the Bible. Uh, it doesn't happen just here. It happens, it happens all over the place. Uh, where someone would tell you, someone would say like to a, a reasonably, uh, you know, well-read biblical reader, talk to me about like how it is that David becomes famous. Or, or rises to some sort of uh, some sort of fame, and uh, and you'll hear, oh well, you know, obviously killed Goliath. That was a bit, you know, when he's a kid, uh, and you know, when Saul was having his uh, his sort of fits because the spirit of God was troubling him, uh, David soothed him with the lyre. This is these are two incredibly famous uh, images of David. Again, both of them uh, well preserved in in art and, uh, and and that sort of thing. So we're familiar, I think, that David playing the lyre for Saul stuff is deeply connected with David being the author of the Psalms. Right? So these are, these are long-standing big kinds of traditions about David. The problem is, in the biblical text, they don't go together, even though they're in chapters right next to each other. Uh, so let me explain what I mean by that. In 1 Samuel 16, we meet David for the first time. And we meet David for the first time when Saul is has, you know, this evil spirit from God has, has been uh, put on him and he's he's struggling uh, a little bit with it. And uh, and they're like, we need to find someone who can soothe this this guy. And someone's like, ah, there's this, there's this kid I heard of, David, who has already, on a, in a sort of side moment, has already been secretly anointed by Samuel as king in, in a Cinderella-style uh, selection process where they like, go through all the brothers and it's like, oh, it must be the, the younger one whose heel fits in the shoe. Samuel has anointed David in secret, and then somebody fortuitously is like, ah, I hear this David kid can play the lyre, and David is brought to Saul and plays the lyre, and Saul is soothed, and he's like, I like this kid. I'm going to keep him by my side as my arms bearer is what Saul says when David plays the lyre for him in chapter 16. And and then da- and then Saul sends a note to David's father, Jesse, and it's like, hey, just let you know, I'm gonna keep your kid with me uh, as my arms bearer uh, and he can play the, uh, play the lyre for me. Awesome, that's all well and good. And then we get to chapter 17 and Saul's out there on the battlefield of the Philistines and where is his arms bearer? He's home with his dad. And, uh, and that's weird, first of all. And then when he does show, when David does show up, and he like goes out into the battlefield, he's like, uh, you know, facing off the Goliath, Saul turns to his, uh, Saul turns to his general and goes, who the hell is that? <laughs> and you'd think the response would be like, uh, that's your arms bearer. I guess he's like AWOL or has been. Uh, but, you know, they're like, I don't know. I'll, f- I'll find out who that is. Uh, as if they'd never seen him before. So there, there are two introductions to David. There's two introductions to David, and they both do the same thing sort of functionally, right? Uh, they both bring Saul, bring David into Saul's court, because the end of the Goliath story is the same, right? Uh, you know, Saul sees David do this brave thing, and he's like, hey, why don't you come hang out with me? I'm going to tell your dad, right? Like, uh, so you've got these, um, these two stories that are functionally a doublet. How did David, a nobody kid, end up hanging out with Saul in the royal court? And one story is, because uh, he plays the liar so nicely, and one story is he faced down Goliath. Uh, but they they don't 
Like they absolutely don't go together. Leaving, leaving aside the question of like, is one or the other historically accurate? The presence of two competing stories in the text right next to each other, doing the same thing and not working together, kind of that in itself raises, for me at least, the, the question of, okay, so who is responsible for writing and constructing these stories there's someone trying to accomplish something. Again, this is this is, you know, what is what's the aim of the text? What's the aim of the writer? It's to get us to know that David is worthy, that David is special, that David is destined for great things, even though David will spend the next many chapters uh, denying that he is in any way. Uh, the only thing I would mention before we move on from that is when you when you read the bo- read the story as as spin as you know, this is trying to defend the way in which David came to the throne, so to speak. That David and Goliath story, I always love the part where he goes, when he first shows up on the scene, he's like going around asking, what what happens again yeah. if I kill this <laughs> Goliath? And they're like, oh, well, you know, you basically get your, you get the daughter of the king in marriage, which basically puts you in line as the, you know, in the throne. And then... Yeah. He like keeps asking. It says that, that he asks a couple of times, and then his oldest brother basically is like gets really mad at him. So he's like, "I know you. I know what kind of person you are. You've only you, you like this is you're out to get something out of this." And just for me, growing up, I always read that story as the older brother is just jealous and as like clearly you know a, going against God's will in all of this. But then when you read it in the context of the whole story, you're like, "Well, maybe he did. Maybe he did know his brother." There's a funny thing that happens, actually, uh, just, you know, while, while we're on the topic, there's a funny thing that happens where there are people in the story who say the true things about David sometimes. You know, Saul, uh, who, Saul says the right thing. Saul's like, you are trying to get my, to get my throne. And he turns to Jonathan, who is, you know, enamored with David and is like, you're, you're siding with this guy who like, you're just going to hand him our, you know, our legacy, our, our throne, our, our inheritance, uh, the kingship. Uh, you know, he, he looks at all these people around. He's like, you know, he, he sees David come back victorious from, from battle. And he's like, man, the people love him. Next thing he's going to want is to be in, in, in power. And he says all these things. And, you know, and then he like tries to kill David repeatedly, both in his court and then chasing him down. And he's like constantly accusing David of wanting to usurp the throne, all of which I think is almost certainly true but the story presents Saul as crazy. So it's as if it's as if they're recognizing the fact that people were for sure saying these things about David. But what kind of person would say this? Right? Only a crazy person would think that David actually wanted that. And they literally put it in the in the mouth of somebody who they've portrayed as crazy. Even though everything Saul says is like actually comes true. It's like they have to I mean, back to David and his elder brother Eliab and and, um, the accusation basically that David is ambitious. From what Jared read, you get that impression. And it seems like they're leaving that. It creates a little bit of a tension in a man after God's old heart business. I think at least it does. And but there's a um, there's a sense in which naming it might be better than not mentioning it at all. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a really a really nice observation. And I think that again, this is this is part of what happens in spin is, you know, people are going to tell you that it was like this. But it wasn't. Right? But you you have to say the first part. Right? Uh saying the first part actually does does some rhetorical work for you. Right? It it um 
it, it makes it so that you're not it makes it sound less completely made up in a, in a sense. It's like, you no, know, I, 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 know, I know that this is how, what people are saying. And even that it might've looked this way and it might've even looked this way to people at the time, you know, people around him. But uh, David gets all of the opportunity to prove over and over again that he wanted none of this, right? When Saul tries to kill him and David sneaks up on him and twice, right? And is like, I could have killed you, but I didn't. See how honest I am. See how little I want this. You're chasing me down for no reason at all. When Saul and Jonathan die and David weeps and wails and he has this wonderful lament over them, you know, he demonstrates again and again uh, in his own words that he didn't want it. But, but you're right. The people out there who are who lay accusations against him, they're they're part of the story too. Right, and, and like right after that, with Eliab, you know, accusing his brother of ambition, that's when you get to the actual narrative of the killing of Goliath, and David comes out looking really good there. It's like yeah, all that stuff, but look at what he did, and and he's like super Israelite here. He's like he's like total king material, right? He's he's honoring the Lord, he's defying the armies of the Philistines, and he just goes at it in pretty short order. So yeah, I, I can see your point of having both of those elements in the narrative. It's not just, you know, a nice tale that only props up, uh, you know, your leader. It acknowledges the problems, but then sort of deflects them a little bit. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, I don't know if this is a, I don't know how, how far down this rabbit hole you want to go, but, you know, one, one of the things that I consider a really nice sort of data point for reading David's story in Samuel as apology is the other story of David in the Bible, which is in, you know, the retelling of it in the book of Chronicles, which is hundreds of years later and well distant from any of the events and has none of the bad stuff in it, right? There's not a single hint of negative anything about David. He's perfect. There's no rebellion against him. He has no problems with Saul, right? Uh, Everything is totally whitewashed and like polished and cleaned up in a way that reads as once you've read Samuel, reads as, as ridiculous in, in a sense. But it's clear that at that point, they don't need to be convincing you that David is great, right? They can just, right? You, you know that David is, is terrific at, at this point when, when, the, when Chronicles is being written, you know, hundreds of years later, which is why when you go back then to read Samuel, you're like, man, they're both acknowledging all this bad stuff, not, the bad, not just the bad things that happened, but the bad things people were saying and rebutting it directly. That suggests so strongly to me that they must have felt that someone must have felt the need to do this, right? People must have known what happened, known what was saying, even maybe thought some nasty things about David. And these writers were like, okay, well, how do we, you know, how do we make sure that sort of the, the, the history written by us, the victors, makes it clear that David is, is, was in fact great, right? There's, a, there's an argument being made in that text that, again, is, is not at all dissimilar. It's so easy these days to, to turn to politics, but, you, you know, you could watch whichever your, your preferred news channel uh, is and get essentially the same kind of thing happening where, you know, we're going to talk about what's going on, but our guy is going to come out looking great and the other guys are going to come out looking bad. And can you believe they're saying this stuff about Trump or Biden or whomever, can you believe they're saying that stuff about him? That's them being, that's just jealous pet, pettiness. Here's what's really going on. I, you know, we're, I think we're just all super familiar with it, even if we don't think about it in those, you know, as, as being the same thing. We're familiar with it from, from today's political and media landscape. We just don't really usually think about the Bible as playing politics and media, but it is. 
Well, Pete mentioned earlier, you know, the David and Goliath story is one famous story and example of, of how we can talk about the shape of, of the story of David. The other is Bathsheba, but I, I would broaden that out just kind of like what we did with Goliath and the introduction of David and all of that to just kind of David's relationship with women in general is, is problematic. And maybe you can talk a little bit, maybe we start with Bathsheba, but I'd like to talk about it in the context of the other women in David's life and how they end up being married to him. Yeah, as I said at the beginning, David's got a lot of wives sequentially, and they basically all, at least the ones we know anything about, are like the like the deaths that happen around him, the marriages that happen around him are also usually to his political benefit, at least as presented to us in this story. So we have, you know, David marries David marries Saul's daughter, um, Michal, which is something of an unexpected uh, twist. Uh, he was supposed to marry a different one, but Saul kind of rescinded that offer, and David ends up marrying Michal instead. Uh, that's a big deal. Right? To, if you are interested in, in getting into the, the kingship, uh, but it's, uh, that's, that's advantageous to him. Uh, but it, it doesn't go anywhere, that particular marriage. Uh, perhaps because she's childless, the, the, the story presents it, uh, or I mean, she's, she becomes childless at a certain point, uh, but also because she's, uh, he, he gets kicked out of the court um, you know, after, after they've been married. She helps him run away, the famous uh, you know, doll in the beds trick. He marries Abigail, this uh, this story that I was mentioning earlier, uh, where uh, Abigail's husband, uh, Naval, or Nabal, uh, uh, in uh, inexplicable divinely ordained circumstances that benefit David, who has been on the run from uh, from Saul and, you know, runs this protection racket with this rich guy, Naval, uh, ends up with all of Naval's vast amounts of wealth and animals and land and his wife. Um, that's, you know, clearly advantageous. Weirdly, the, the one marriage that is in, not seemingly politically advantageous is the Bathsheba one, which is a, a kind of a fascinating blip, as it were, in the, in the story of David. Bathsheba and her story are really, not to complicate things too much, are really part of the Solomon story. Uh, which is to say, uh, I think we've got something similar going on with Solomon that we do with David, which is people writing the story of Solomon in a way that makes Solomon look, you know, good and and uh, and necessary. Because Solomon also should not have been the next king after David. He was the fourth son. What was he doing? How did he end up in power? It's the same kind of questions, right? How did this guy, this fourth son, end up in power? Well, first son, first, you know, this eldest son died, and the second eldest son committed, you know, treason against his father, and the third eldest son committed treason much later against his So anyway, that's how I ended up as king. But the Bathsheba story is one that I think is unabashedly bad for David. And that's one of the reasons I think it so captures the imagination. And certainly it's one of the reasons that it has been you know, sort of, a, weirdly, a favorite story, even for people who read this text very literally and to take its morals very seriously, because the Bathsheba story, and you guys probably know this better than I, the Bathsheba story is where people turn to, to say, but David, David was a, you know, David sinned just like all. He was he was a guy just like everyone else. Right? He was he was a man and he had his flaws. But even the you know what the story teaches us is that even even the flawed person who sins can be redeemed and welcomed back. It somehow when he, when you love David a lot and 
Jewish and Christian tradition really love David a lot. Even the story that makes him look most terrible, like the Bathsheba story, somehow becomes a point in his favor. But the Bathsheba story itself is, I think, an unmitigated disaster, narratively, at least, for David, right? He sees a woman. He decides, I'm going to take that woman. He does. He has her husband killed in a particularly vicious sort of way, not before trying to, you know, sort of get out of, uh, get out of trouble for having impregnated her. He has uh, Uriah killed and uh, is delighted by it and then uh, is, is only shown the error of his ways when the prophet Nathan is like, you know, famously, you're the man uh, with the parable of the rich man and the, and the poor man. But there's no, there's no political benefit to David from that particular pairing, which is why I think it's, it stands out. It's also the, the longest episode of, of David and, and uh, one of his wives. And Bathsheba is the only one who comes back again in the story, as she does later when David is very old and she puts Solomon on the throne. But it's a, yeah, it's, it, is, it is the episode that, in a sense, humanizes David as we're reading the Bible. It humanizes David even as it is simply more straightforward about what a bad guy he is. He certainly is. Well, can I ask one more question? Because I, I think this is fascinating and it's a little more conjectural, but I think it's interesting enough to mention. Um, and that is Ahinoam, how she functions in this text. Yeah. So uh, I mean, 98% of the people listening to this are going to say, who? I, I would guess. Because, I mean, I grew up knowing these stories and even I was, I mean, it's such a passing thing. It just says in like one little passing verse relatively early in the story, you know, and then David married Ahinoam. You're like, all right, well, I don't that didn't mean much to me. But there are only, there's only two times that someone with that name is mentioned in the Bible. Uh, one is here where David marries this person. Uh, and one is uh, earlier when we learned that that's the name of Saul's wife. And I, I don't think it's a huge leap to suggest that maybe one of the things that David did in his unrelenting desire for power was to sort of steal Saul's wife. Now, that may sound like a kind of crazy thing, but the ability to sleep with the king's wife is the ability to commit a coup. Uh, this is, in fact, exactly what Absalom will do back to David uh, later in the story, right? Uh, Absalom will sleep with David's concubines, thereby asserting his power. I, if, I, if you can do that and get away with it, you're the king. I think it's a, that's a pretty good rule all around. If you can sleep with the king's wife and live to tell the tale, uh, you probably are king now. And I think this is what, I think potentially this is maybe what David did. He slept with Saul's wife. The problem is he didn't get away with it because Saul then starts pursuing him and, and kicks him out of the court and, and starts chasing him around the country. The, you know, the other little bit of evidence for this is Achinoam disappears from, the Saul's, from Saul's story after this. Uh, and when Saul has future children, uh, they're said to be uh, born from his concubine, Ritzpah. So we have both Ahinoam showing up in the David story and disappearing from the Saul story at the same time. Now, I would suggest that this is potentially the same kind of spin. It's just spin through incredibly strong downplaying. Like, you know, like they couldn't deny the fact, I guess, that David married Saul's wife, but they don't make it into a story. And they accomplish it simply by removing her from Saul's, you know, like... Uh, you know, family uh, tree. And uh, simply this one verse of like, and uh, David married Achinoam. Anyway, uh, where were we? Uh, and, then, and then it goes on from there. Because that would be, it is such a manifest coup attempt to sleep with the king's wife. It is speculative. 
but you know, I, one of the things I guess I want to say in the in the big pictures, it's all kind of speculative. In a sense, what we're we're trying to do here is not necessarily to say straight out, ah, this is what actually for sure happened, because in a sense, that's just as like that's just as bad as being like what the Bible says is exactly what actually happened. What I'm what I'm really after here is to think about why the Bible tells stories the way it tells stories. Right? What are the authors trying to accomplish? And even if you know we disagree about the likelihood of this or that reconstruction of what may have underlaid the the, the, the stories it's told, it's a really a question of like how do we read the Bible? That I think is, is is what's really at stake here. You know the the big picture. What I'm hearing, and for you kids at home, the message of the David story is not be like David. It is mainly maybe it's <laughs> to accept the kind of literature that this story is and to read it as an adult. You know, and with asking questions of genre and purpose. I love the question. You know, why was this story ever written this way? And I think that's a that alone is just a great thing, I think, for people to walk away with from an episode like this. Thanks so much for taking the time to hang out with us, and uh, to, great talking to you about David. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, guys. You've just made it through another episode of The Bible for Normal People. Thanks to our listeners who support us each week by rating the podcast, leaving a review, and telling others about our show. We couldn't have made this amazing episode without the help of our producers group. Brian, Tracy Falkenberg, Shelley Shepard, Mark Cuppets, Michelle Mastin, Jean and John Hawkins, Tom Hoy, Justin Bodich, Drew and Regina Forsyth, and Brian Culpepper. As always, you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People team. Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Stephanie Spate, Tessa Stoltz, Nick Striegel, Haley Warren, Jessica Shaw, and Natalie Wyand. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.